works. Well, after everything's said and done, if you still rather have VeggieTales, don't tell me, okay? So I, um, uh, my name's Bob, Robert. So I'd like to uh, maybe make this as just a, uh, the, the time together now as kind of an extended uh, invitation about how much I've been enjoying Wednesday evenings, as Ryan has been talking about. And we've been really st- uh, struggling, but um, dialoguing with really some pretty, uh, wouldn't you agree, Ryan, some pretty difficult uh, issues, you know, violence in the Bible, is God a God of violence, you know, those things. And so we're, um, we're trying to find, and so, that, so for this morning, I wanted to go through a, one of the parables of Jesus, uh, even though this is not on the, um, you know, the, uh, the liturgical calendar, but Ryan gave me the approval. Ryan said, okay, to go off topic. Okay, so, um, and what I'd like to do is I wanted, I, so I was thinking about, so what, what one place could you go to to try and find a story, a short story, that is just a summary of God's big story, the, the big story, you know. And, I, and so one of those places is um, the prodigal son, and so that's what I want to go over. Now, and the way I want to do it is I want to do it by just asking nine questions, okay? And, and we're a small enough group here. I mean, they can be questions you don't have to answer, but if you, have, if you want to answer it, I mean, I'm not going to take the mic to you, but that's okay. You can bark it out, okay? So um, in prep for that, many times people have heard the story, I think, incorrectly. Okay, tell me if this is how you've heard the story. A man had two sons, and one day the younger son wanted to go out on his own, and so he asked for his share, his fair share, and the father divided it up between uh, the two kids. And, uh, and he gave it to them. I'll, I'll bet he gave it to them a little prematurely because he was still alive. Well, the younger son leaped into immorality. He, you know, he took his share and went off into another land and spent all of his money to the point when he realized at that point that he had made a mistake. And he returned to his father in humility and repentance. And, of course, how does the father respond? He saw him coming, and he rushes out to meet him, and he welcomes him back as a son, as it says, who was dead and is now alive. And then the story shifts to the elder son who heard the ruckus and, upon returning to the house, became jealous that the younger son had gotten so much attention for simply fessing up to his mistakes. And he, the elder son, had received nothing for his hard work all his life. Now, how many of you heard the story that way? Does that sound kind of familiar? Okay. That's the anemic version I'm going to um, offer up today. Okay. So, um, I'd like to go through this with a... To see if we can get a little different take on it by asking um, nine questions. Okay, so... You could even, there's no clock in here. Oh, yeah, there is. But you can tell how far along we are by how many questions we've answered. Okay. Um, uh, But to get a hold of these, and so these questions are actually to ask to get a little further context of the story. Let me just, one more preface here. Um, 
both the first century culture and our culture are what anthropologists call high-context high cultures. And what that means is you don't have to spell everything out. What would be uh, low context is, has anybody ever, like, during Christmas time, had to assemble something, like a toy or something, and it says, take screw number eight, and you put it into hole number three. You know, everything is just, you can't hardly go wrong. But when we deal with each other on a daily basis, we don't deal that way. In fact, the more intimate relationships that we have, the higher the context in which we speak. In fact, couples who have been together a long time almost, you, you know, like the, the, the husband will say, and I'm going to, and, she, and the wife will say, to the store. You know, they just kind of answer. They already know what's going to be said. So that's the problem when we come to New Testament texts because we overlay our high context onto a first century context, and a lot of times it doesn't work. And that's what I'm saying with this thing. Okay, so here. Um, so as I said before, Jesus' parables are told in context of a peasant society. And so uh, let's ask some questions. So the first question, and so what I've done is I've just kind of put the text up there, okay, um, so you don't have to open up your Bibles. Um, and it says that, you know, Jesus starts out, there was a landowner apparently relatively successful. So let's start off with easy questions. Just from your, either your knowledge of the parable or from up there, how do we know that the landowner was well off? Would you guess? Any ideas? Well, he, he huh? He's able to divide something in half. Okay. Uh, any, uh, any, any other ideas? Later on in the story, the, the younger son, remember, says, I just want to come back as one of one of my dad's hired servants. He's got hired servants. You know, and when they celebrate, do they celebrate at McDonald's? No. I mean, the biggest pig on the block, you know, and that's exactly right. So he's coming with some stuff, right? Okay. Um. Okay, question number two. We're already moving here at a rapid pace. Um, when you look at the family, um, is the family, does it come across to you as a uh, healthy family? Uh, you know, father, two sons. We don't hear anything about the, the mom, you know. But are, are they, a, are they a, 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 you know, um, emotionally functioning, healthy family, do you think? What do you, what's your impression? If, if you said no, uh, well, actually, so I would say, I don't think it's 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 a dysfunctional family. How do we know that? Well, the son already says, "Hey, uh, you know, I'm give me half. I, I, I want to get out of here." And you don't hear too many saying, you don't hear too many people saying, "Oh no, son, please," or "Brother, no, come on, we we can make it together." You know, so, uh, not, we don't hear too much of that. In fact, I would say that this family is dysfunctional from the get-go. Okay? Uh, question number three. So where does the son get his inheritance? In the first century, sons were actually the parents' inheritance. 
uh, they were the parents' social security, in a sense. They would be the ones who would uh, take over the operations and provide for the parents when they got too old to, uh, you know, to carry on. And the son's inheritance was what the family lived on. You know, they didn't have CDs back then. They couldn't go to the, you know, um, Jerusalem uh, trust and loan, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and so the request for the younger son is actually twofold. He says one was a division of the inheritance, but the other half of it was the, um, uh, the, uh, the okay to spend the inheritance. Okay. Uh, in fact, this was such a unique case that in all of Second Temple Judaism, Judaistic uh, literature, this is the only case that scholars have found where uh, uh, a son has asked for the inheritance prior to the death of the father. And in fact, what it is, is it's, a, it's like asking the father, how much longer are you going to be around, old man? The point is that um, the father had the right, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, to discipline the son for such a show of distress. So question number four. Now how, so we know the, elder, uh, the, the younger son's got his issues. How about the elder son? Well, you might say, okay, he doesn't do anything, so he, you know, he, he must be okay. Well, that's just the point. In first century Mediterranean culture, the elder son, his role in this situation would be cut and dried. It was his job as the third-party reconciler to help reconcile the situation. But what does he do? He does nothing, and that's probably because he cares so little for either one. Question number five. Man, we're already halfway there. Um, what would the, would the village have had anything to say about the son's actions? Now, here's something that we don't hear anything about, okay? But um, archae- once again, they've done studies on you know, the, the small um, hamlets in the, in, the, in the Galilee area. And they found that they're really small. In fact, when you think of um, Nazareth, where Jesus was born, they've done studies on that. And how big is the, was the Nazareth? Nazareth, they come to find out, had less than 200 people in them, which means it's probably only uh, four or five families, and that's where Jesus was raised. Um, and so every... Uh-huh. Uh, it, it could be, you know, but we can certainly say if that was the case, you know, um, that there was a climate that bred that hesitation and that fear, you know, within the family structure. Yeah, I agree. That's a good point. Um, well, so in this 
town, um, the, the, the way the, it was structured is the buildings were real close together and everybody's land was out. That's how it, how it worked, okay? And everybody in town could have been related to one another, you know, so it could have been uncles, cousins, you know, nephews, that kind of thing. And so the, que- the answer is, you betcha that the, that the um, village would have had something to say. Here's someone within their little group, and they're, they're selling the, you know, the land or the, the, uh, the inheritance. Would they be happy with it? I mean, that's not the question on there, but that's just another question. Okay, freebie. They would be absolutely, totally pissed off. Uh, oh, this is in church. I mean, they've been totally upset. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and in fact, um, the neighbors could very well <clears throat> uh, be related to you, so they would have been extremely upset. So, uh, question number six: What does the father do? Now, so he not only divides the inheritance, but he gives the younger son the power to dispose of his part. Now, Jesus is clear about the character of the father, right? I'm just gathering my emotions, pardon me. Uh, He's willing to do anything for his sons. He'll even, excuse me, he'll even risk his own existence for them. So the younger son takes the possessions, leaves for a far country, and squanders his money in, and this is another mistranslation. Uh, The next phrase uh, uh, has usually said like... um, uh, immorality and stuff, but it's, it's actually better translated an irresponsible life, not an immoral life. So here he is, a Jew in a far country, having spent his last drachma, and a famine hits, and he begins to be in want, okay? You see, he more than others, because he was a Jew living in a non-Jewish uh, land, began to be in want. So the text says that he, quote-unquote, glues himself to a citizen of that country. Now, the polite way for a Middle Easterner to get rid of an unwanted uh, hanger-on is to assign him a task that they know that will be refused. Yet we see that this younger son accepts the job of a pig herder. Okay, now, how many Jewish pig herders do you know? Okay, the point is, is that pigs and Jews, yeah, they, 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 you won't find them sleeping together. I think it is safe to say that he was not getting a living wage because the text says that, he, that no one gave him anything. So at this point, and this is what I want to get to. This is kind of one of the key points. There's another lapse in the traditional rendition of the story for it says that the son came to himself and he began to formulate a plan. And everybody that I have read or heard on these sermons, see, that is what everybody says. He repented, and so now he's going to come back. Okay? The son reflects, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare But I perish here with hunger. 
I will arise, go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Question number seven. What do you think? Has he seen the light? Has he reversed his course? Has he repented? Let me give you a little more info. To come to yourself, the way it says, that is never how repentance is is talked about in the Bible. Number two, in a household, you could have bond servants. These were servants who were part of the estate and indeed almost like a part of the family. You could have you could have slaves who were subordinate to the bond servants, or you could have hired servants who were outsiders and they had no personal interest in or in the personal affairs of the master, but they were free and hired for pay as needed. As a hired servant, the young son, the younger son would be a free man with his own income living independently in the local village. So you see, the son at this point has not reached rock bottom. Why? Because he's still in control. His plan is to return home, ask his father for a job, pay off his debt, and get on with his life. Notice how he talks to his father. Is it a request? It's a command. Treat me as one of your hired servants. In regard to his father, then, the son fully intends to confess his failure. This failure seems to be understood as money lost, bad judgment, not bad morals. He has a plan that will give him independence from his father and provide an opportunity to compensate for his errors. This plan will also allow him to stay out of his brother's way, and all he'll have to endure is his neighbors. And he can just say, you know, up yours with a rubber hose to them. With pride in place, he intends to order his father to make him a hired servant. In short, he will save himself. He wants no grace because he's still in control. So plan and tow, he heads home where his father sits waiting. Okay, um, let me just put a little aside here. So pardon me, um, don't be embarrassed. It's just this is an emotional story for me, okay? So plan and tow... He heads home where his father sets uh, waiting, knowing the odds are that his son will fail. Why? Because his, been, his neighbors have been telling every time that stupid son of yours is going to fail. Uh, inform him you know, how dumb it was for, to give the young man what he asked for. They, uh, they, are anxious to see, they are as anxious to see him as the father, but for very different reasons. They'll be the ones to set him straight. So the father sees the son. Now, if I can get past this question, then, you know, life will be good for my own emotion. Seeing the, uh, 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 seeing the young man, oh, I'm sorry. Now, every action that he subsequently does from this point of the story on, he does for the good and protection of his son. 
Okay, good. Seeing the young man, the father runs to him. Now, in the Middle East culture, men do not run. Embraces him and kisses him. Question number eight. We're almost there. We already know what the youth is going to say because he's already told us earlier in the story, right? My question is, does he say it all? And the answer is no. Give me a second. A change has occurred. So why? He is shattered by his father's demonstration of love and humility. Sorry. He sees the point is not loss of money, but loss of relationship, which he cannot heal. Any renewed relationship must be a pure gift from the Father. This is the basis of the joy that is expressed through the music and feasting. And note the celebration that, like you had said, that's the whole village. It's this big, fat pig that is slaughtered. So that is a way of Father, even though the villagers were telling him every moment, your son's dumb, you shouldn't have done that. He gives a feast for even those people. Now the elder son hears all this commotion on his way home from work. His first thought is to be suspicious. So upon hearing the report of his brother's return, he refuses to enter the house. Now, how disrespectful is this? Custom requires the elder son's presence. If this is not disrespectful enough, he humiliates his father by complaining in front of the guests. Now again, notice a couple of things. The father is again disrespected, and there's a break in the relationship between the older son and the father, I would say of the same magnitude as with the younger son. So for a second time in the same day, the father goes out of the house offering in public humiliation, a demonstration of unexpected love. He comes out to entreat, not to scold. So the last question, how does the elder son respond? Does he see the light? Let me give you a little information here. So this is the first time, by the way, when the older son is addressing his father. This is the first time that the father is not addressed with a title. In verse 29, he describes his service to the father in terms of slavery. And then third, he distances himself even firmer, further from his family. Notice, he says, your son, not my brother.
The elder son is tired, hurt, and demoralized. He's tired because he's the one who's been at it week after week, month after month. He's hurt because he feels that he's being taken advantage of and being taken for granted. Have you ever felt taken for granted in your life? He's he's demoralized because he has lost his grounding. He feels so out of touch with his family that he's unable to relate to them. He He has pulled away from them, and he no longer considers himself a part of them. Now, the father is not willing to give up on him, and he appeals again. Beginning in verse 31, he says three points. Number one, no matter what happens around you, son, you keep your eye on the ball. You don't lose your focus or your perspective. He goes on to say, we will always be family. And as family, I will always be proud of you and not hold back anything. Second, he says, don't lose sight of the big picture. His brother's been restored. By means of selfless selfless love, grace has been extended, and this is the important point, but not diluted. It's not a zero-sum game. He says, all that is mine is yours. And last, you're not to operate on the level of a hired servant, but on the level of family. It is on the basis of love, not merit, It is on the basis of grace and forgiveness, not reward, that we seek to function as a family. So let me just take a couple of kind of consolidate things here. So this is just the context of the story. Do you see how different it is from, from a traditional reading? It has become clear to me that these two brothers have both lost their way. Both are a long way from where they should have been. Both return home and, be, and they both encounter a loving forgiveness that is so powerful that the father is willing to risk all. Not just to give all, but to risk all. The younger son finally comes to understand the stakes that are involved. The father's gracious forgiveness has no bounds. He will go to any lengths to restore his children. Yet it is with the elder son that we see that love is not a momentary experience. You need to get in the game to play, but only by staying in the game can victory be achieved. Both require an experience and understanding of God's forgiveness. And here's a point, another point I want to emphasize. The, the um, understanding of God's forgiveness as a gift. It's not some kind of deal or transaction. If forgiveness operates like a deal, then there are and will be situations that will be impossible to forgive. That's, society operates like that. You know, if you come and say you're sorry, then I'll forgive you. If you come and pay me back, then I'll forgive you. But if forgiveness is a gift, then situations that were considered beyond the possibility of forgiveness 
now become possible. In other words, forgiveness, if we consider it as a gift, then forgiveness now enters, is able to enter the realm of the impossible. Things that were considered unforgivable now become the subject matter of general of, of genuine forgiveness. Now, it was ideas like this that actually got Jesus into trouble and with, with the authorities because the lifestyle he was offering was not subject to Roman control. Jesus refused to treat others as an outsider. Roman imperial ideology was based on a fundamental distinction between insider and outsider. And I would say that our society does the same thing. So forgiveness, just the last couple sentences. So forgiveness for a first century Mediterranean was a transaction where if you did this, then you'll be forgiven. Even today, we express sorrow, we make restitution, so we can be forgiven. That is not how the Father operated. In contrast to this understanding, Jesus is offering the Father, whose concept of forgiveness is a gift, I would almost say bordering on irresponsibility, on the father's part because of his love for his sons so this morning could we consider this parable of Jesus as a challenge to continually continually renew our commitment to a life of forgiveness that resists categories of us and them however that specifically plays itself out For God's gracious embrace extends even to all creation. God bless you this morning.